Hello, Acaville Radio. Welcome to another exciting episode of Talk Appella. I am one half of your host, Brian Alexander. And I'm the other guy, John Lampus. John, man, how is it going? It's been a while. Well, it's been a bit, but it's been a bit for Talk Appella, but not for us, <laughs> which is always interesting because you came on my movie show, A Little Anarchy Movie Podcast. Check us out at ALA Podcast, which was super fun to have you on. And then I was like, oh, but it's been a bit since we did Talk Appella because July gets busy. You know, Spider-Man came out, then the Lion King came out. So many things yeah. just, just kind of going. Have you seen the new Lion King movie yet? I did. I actually saw it this past Saturday. You know, I was pleasantly I haven't seen it yet, so I'm it. kind of well, Don't let me spoil the ending for you then, in that hey, case. Hey. I won't ruin it for you. <laughs> <laughs> they actually retroactively change. Mufasa doesn't die in this one, right? I know. James Earl Jones always... lives. He lives on. <laughs> You know, so <laughs> it ends up being a pretty good movie. But uh, yeah, thanks for having me on your podcast. That was super exciting to talk superheroes, my other love uh, outside of yeah, music. Yeah, right. So. It was really yeah. fun to have that dynamic, like from Talk About the Transplanted into another show. But it worked really fun. Brian, what are we talking about today? What are we doing? Man, okay. So we have a very exciting guest today. He is, in my opinion, a celebrity in the collegiate acapella world. Yeah. I'm sure many have heard his name before. He's a previous and actually currently acapella ranger, coach, producer, and according to his website, position scientist. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. We have none other than Chris Rischel joining us. Chris, how's it going? Hey, it's great. How are you guys? Doing good. Doing I don't think we've ever had an anesthesiologist on the show before. <laughs> no, that's a first. Well, first time for everything. <laughs> yeah. So, Chris, to start out, I want to ask you a question that is really just, I think, kind of core to our show in that as an anesthesiologist, in the series finale of Everybody Loves Raymond, when he has trouble coming out of the anesthesia, was that legit? Or was that just, were they stretching the bounds of reality just to, to get some drama out of it? I feel like that's always kind of been hanging over the show. And I really want to figure out if that's a legit situation. I hate to disappoint you guys, but I haven't seen it. So I, I can't oh, well, tell you. All right. But, so yeah, this interview is over. I'll uh, see you guys later. <laughs> Bye. Okay. Now we uh, have to talk about other stuff. And that was yeah, the Now I guess we have to talk point. about acapella or something. <laughs> I know. Chris, for those who might not be familiar with your work and your time with Voices in your head and just your general acapella background. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in music and what you were doing previously? Yeah, I've been doing music since I was really young. Started playing piano when I was around four or five years old and did a lot with music, mostly instrumental music, kind of all through elementary school. In junior high school, there was uh, the choir director who came over to the band class and basically was trying to recruit people for the junior high school barbershop chorus, which I didn't realize at like the time was like a weird thing that a junior high school has a barbershop chorus but yeah she was looking for a lot of not necessarily like trained singers but just musicians that basically had a sense of pitch could you know tune to to do that and a lot of my friends were going to do it so I thought okay well sure I'll try it and I ended up really getting kind of addicted to that style of singing and the way harmony sounded like the ringing really uh, locked chords really was appealing so I formed a quartet with three other people in my junior high and we started competing and kind of performing around and did that mostly through high school when i went to college so i guess just to like give a broader context at the same time when i was around five i started programming and so i was also doing computer science stuff growing up and working tech jobs through high school and so i going to college i was trying to decide do i major in computer science or do i major in music composition because i liked both those things a lot and i really wasn't sure what i wanted to do with my life and really, it came down to a simple way to think about it, which is that if I majored in music composition, but then decided I wanted to go work for Google, they probably would be like, uh, I don't really know what to do with this degree. But if I majored in computer science and wanted to go do music, as long as the music that I was writing was, oh, was decent, probably didn't matter what I did my degree in. So I decided to go to the computer science route. And in college, continued singing in a choir and doing competitive barbershop quartetting, but now at sort of the collegiate level. And I actually didn't really know much of anything about this kind of modern acapella style until one of my best friends from high school was a year younger than me. He went off to Duke for undergrad and he joined the Duke Pitchforks. 
And this was in that in sort of the Joseph Bates era of the pitchforks. So like really high quality arrangements, really kind of a high standard of musicality. And I think I'd just never seen modern acapella in that light. I sort of thought it was mostly just kind of kitschy, not super substantial kind of music. I just had no exposure to it, really. But I started listening a lot to that and sort of wishing that I could get into that a little bit more. The thing is, I still, I was like a very functional singer in that I could tune and maintain a steady tone, but I was not a great singer and in particular, not really a great soloist. So I tried auditioning for some of the, bigger name acapella groups at the University of Illinois, which is where I went to undergrad and auditioned for three years and didn't get into a single group all three years. So (laughs) I, uh, that is really surprising. Been there. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I think there is something to be said for this is like a broader discussion of like what groups prioritize when they look, when they audition people and sort of what they think is really important and what is sort of like nice to have, but not critical. And yeah, that's like a, a whole nother conversation, but Anyway, so it sort of just kept doing the barbershop thing until I went to med school. So I decided midway through college, got cold feet about doing a tech job and thought it would be really interesting to try and think about how I could apply the computer science background and techniques and skills to problems in medicine. And so I decided I'd defer all major life decisions and not commit to anything. And so I decided to do an MD PhD, which basically locked me into being in school for the entirety of my 20s. And when I went to med school, I just for the heck of it decided to check out the acapella groups at the University of Chicago, which it was not a very active scene. I mean, on campus, so there were seven groups on campus, but they didn't really perform off campus all that much. They didn't really compete. They weren't really known beyond just kind of the campus world. And the best group, I'm putting that in air quotes, but you can't see the air quotes. But we can. Yeah, you can. You can. That's true. (laughs) They were like, oh, no, no, no. This is undergrad only. We don't take grad students. So I was like, okay, well, that's fine. And another group who were probably not quite as well known or established, but had really good tuning. And so I thought it would still be pretty fun to sing with them called Voices in Your Head was like, oh, we've never really had a grad student before, but sure, why not? And so I auditioned for them. And that is how I sort of got my feet into this world. So it's kind of a long winded answer, but it sort of maybe puts things into context a little bit. There's a lot of little key things that happen there that I think are a little bit different than most people's acapella journey. Honestly, the the thing that struck me at the beginning, and I'm a junior high choir teacher, the notion that your junior high had a barbershop chorus, and how that influenced your sense of musicality, your musicianship, and just like the kind of music you were exposed to at that age. Barbershop stuff is generally is, you know, it's not as much in the popular culture as contemporary acapella is right now. And the notion of that being specifically integrated into a middle school as like a barbershop, a genre specific group, those are not super common in in scholastic situations. So the fact that the people, you know, the band teacher or the choir teacher was recruiting for that is super interesting. And, and do you think that being in a barbershop group from a very young age kind of set you on a slightly different trajectory? Oh, totally. So yeah, I mean, kind of like I said, I don't think I had an appreciation for how uncommon and unique that situation was until after the fact. Mm-hmm. But definitely, I think there is so much to the idea that exposure to things early in life, like this is going a little bit down a science route, but we know that the brain is extremely plastic, especially at a very, very young age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the early exposure to things to really kind of key your brain into very nuanced tuning, to really kind of hear that stuff, or just to instinctively understand and feel harmony and also kind of in the broader sense of like arranging and composing and things like that. I I actually think music theory early on is a really good idea too. I am certain that if I didn't have that experience, there is no way that I would have been able to do all the things that I'd done or even thought of doing them. Because I mean, the other thing, this is not ideal and probably is a problem in music education in general, but the at least in my school, the best musicians were in band. Choir was yep. not really considered to be the mm. thing that the good musicians <laughs> did. Can confirm, yeah. was a bad musician, was in choir. That's how it works. <laughs> and that's so unfortunate because there is, I think that comes into play because singing is so accessible and in a way mm-hmm. kind of in the junior high sort of adolescent mindset, things which are 
you know, you, you feel accomplished when you do this hard thing, like, oh, I can play like the French horn or like something that's like really technically difficult. And the fact that anyone can sing and oftentimes many people who sing aren't necessarily fantastically good at a lot of the musical fundamentals or don't necessarily have a lot of the underlying musical knowledge that you kind of have to have mm-hmm. to play an instrument, I think reinforces that kind of like instrumental elitism. But it's really unfortunate because the thing that I learned only many, many years later was just that the true flexibility of the voice as an instrument, not just something to sing words, but actually to create really unique sounds and have such precise control over things like phrasing and texture and tone and all of that stuff. That was all just completely lost on me. And I think most people um, at that at that age. No, absolutely. I think there's something to say for the level of discipline that goes into, you know, like people who are in band at an early age. And for me, my experiences are exactly what you guys are saying, that a lot of the kids in our choir, there were a lot of good soloists but there were also a lot of students who were kind of faking their way through choir at the end of the day. They didn't know how to sight read. They could maybe pick up some things by ear, but more or less they just had, they could hold a pitch. And so I think it's definitely says something when you have those young experiences of either being in barbershop or being in band, there's a, there's some complexity there that there it can exist in choir, but it's not everyone's shared experience at the end of the day. Yeah. So just kind of progressing forward. So you had this very technical upbringing almost at least in my mind, you know, there's the the barbershop and then you also had the um, the technology background as well. And you're at this level where you're you're in the PhD program here at the University of Chicago and you come upon the voices in your head group. You know, what brought you to that point and was like, okay, this is something I need to take part in as well as leading to almost like this takeover of re- helping to reshape its sound. A lot of that really developed pretty organically. And it, it's not like I had this like master plan from day one of what I was going to try and do. It really came down to there was this space of music that I found really inspiring that I was interested in that I wanted to explore and see what I could do. And it was an itch that I hadn't really been able to scratch yet, you know, with the years of rejection in these groups in college. And actually, when I joined the group, one of the things that was somewhat of a concern of the people in the group was like, oh, who is like this old guy? Because, you know, I was like 23 instead of, you know, 18 like who who is this old guy and like is he gonna just to like totally try to take over this group and boss us all around and like change this thing because the group I mean I don't want to paint it in like a negative light it's just like its goals were different like it was not trying to do anything ambitious or anything competitive which was fine and I think that they weren't sure exactly how it was gonna kind of go there was a little bit of and at the time I mean I was saying like I'm not trying to like do crazy things here it's not important for me to be in charge and actually in that first year I really was wasn't sure how long I was going to stay in the group. I thought maybe I'll do this for a year and then kind of stop because like the first year of med school is not, it's kind of like college again. I mean, you're mostly taking just classroom classes and you have a couple classes that do have labs, but it's not that different than the undergrad experience. And I sort of figured that, well, once I get kind of further into this, maybe I'll stop if it's not quite so fulfilling. Because I wasn't sure, like I wanted to try to do something, at least something kind of substantial. Like my goal at the end, like the first year, at the end of the first year, we recorded an album. And so I thought my like penultimate goal was I'm going to try to write one good arrangement, get it recorded, and like maybe get it on like a compilation or something like that. But it was this sort of organic chain of, kind of accomplishment and success that they all just built on each other. And the one thing that also is a little bit helpful is, you know, University of Chicago is a little bit more of like a competitive school. It tends to draw like pretty type A people who are rewarded by affirmation in a lot of ways. So when accomplishments start happening and all of a sudden it's like, oh, people feel good about this thing. And the culture of the group just kind of naturally changed. So like in that first year was I, the arrangement that I did for the album was this song called Magic by Ben Folds. And that was the first experience that kind of indicated like maybe this is actually going to be something pretty interesting. So you, are you guys familiar with like the Ben Folds acapella album? Oh, yeah. I'm very familiar. Way back with in the day. <laughs> yeah, everybody pretty much knows that and has a lot of feelings about that. So mm-hmm. kind of just like a little insider thing of what happened with that. So towards the end of my first year in Voices, we had already recorded this magic track. We'd already put it on the album. And Ben Folds was like my musical hero in high school, learned to like play all of his songs and kind of my singing style in some ways was kind of like him as well. Did you ever think about the army? You know, I <laughs> thought about it. But sorry. Uh, no, no, no. That's oh, wait. Sorry, I forgot the response to that is not appropriate for radio. 
Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I almost went there and I was like, maybe not. Uh, ben Folds posted a thing on his website and he was like, I want to feature videos of people performing covers of my songs on my website. So you record yourself playing and singing or like if you're in like a vocal group, like upload that and enter it too. And then I'll put the ones that I like the best on the website and hooray. And so I thought, wow, maybe we could get like our video on Ben Folds' website. And so I submitted our recording of Magic and two or three months went by and we didn't hear anything. And it just kind of disappeared off his website. And it was like not clear that maybe that just wasn't going to materialize at all. Like we weren't picked. No one was picked. And I get this email from this like really weird email address that basically just says, hi, it's Ben. Your recording, <laughs> make your, your acapella group recording has made me think about actually trying to do an acapella album. Can we talk about this? Oh, wow. And it took me a second uh-huh. to just be like, wait, Ben? Is this like, spam? As in what like, is going- Ben so anyway so that like was how that whole thing kind of so you were the instigating factor well i mean there were probably other acapella groups that submitted stuff too like i don't Mm -hmm. know i'm not sure i could say that i was but you're one of them sure yes i'm (laughs) so anyway that was like a huge affirmation right because you can imagine if you're like sort of a like not even the top group on campus and then all of a sudden you're like recording with ben folds and then like we open for ben folds and that track also gets on a compilation and then that lit a spark in a lot of people to be like huh okay well let's just kind of keep going with this and at the same time as part of that process when we recorded that album one of the things that i realized from my friend in the pitchforks and from talking with kind of that world a little bit was the producers you choose just makes such a difference in terms of the quality of the product that you're going to get. And I'd had some experience both with like just being a CS person and kind of thinking technically anyway, but also I'd done some recordings with like a jam band in college, recorded my high school jazz band. So I knew a little bit about audio production and we decided like, okay, I'm going to figure out who like one of the best people is that we can afford to have them come out, record us. And I'm just going to try to watch them like a hawk and figure out how this is done. So James Cannon came and he stayed in my apartment for a week and we hung out and from just watching him, that's like where I figured out like, okay, this is how you do this and decided, okay, I'm going to try and I'm a, I'm a big person that likes to try to find solutions that make everyone's life better. And so even though I'm trying to do this thing with voices in your head, I also want to see acapella at University of Chicago get better too. So we sort of tackled that on several fronts. So one of those was like applying for a live performance sound system. So we had like handheld wireless mics and all that stuff, but also making sure that it wasn't just voices, that it belonged to the campus. So we started a separate organization of an acapella council that like owned it and made sure that it was equitably available to everybody and all that stuff. But anyway, back to the point. So I decided I wanted to try recording people, but I didn't necessarily feel so comfortable in my skills to want to do it with voices. So I found another group on campus that was interested in, oh, I wonder what this ambitious thing could be like, but still not totally sure and not quite as far along. And I basically said, well, okay, so here's what I'll do. I think I kind of know what I'm doing, but I'm not sure. I'm certain I can do a better job than your previous albums, just because I'd be using a more modern technique. Their previous albums were like, stick a microphone in a room and everybody just kind of sings all at once kind of thing. And I will like charge you almost no money. So it's like low risk, high reward kind of thing. It's good for me because it gets me experience to figure out if I actually can do this and kind of work through any of the kinks that I need to, to like develop the skills. And it helps them too, right? Like get a better album than they would otherwise. So did that. And that group was Men in Drag. So, and that was also when like Brienne Holland was a freshman kind of thing. So I sort of like brought her into the fold to like, cause she got really excited about acapella too. And I'm like, great, we can be excited about this stuff together. And then the next year she auditioned for Voices And so, you know, like then she joined Voices. And so that was sort of how Men and Drag came into this equation and also how I got into the producing side. And then I would just use the money that I got from doing the production stuff to buy more production stuff. So I'd get a nicer microphone or a nicer interface or like a mixing console or or whatever, just to like build up my set of equipment and make it more possible for me to keep doing stuff. And then, but but a a lot of that production for other groups was really a means to an end to get equipment and have opportunity to then have this 
palette that I could just do crazy stuff with voices with where there's like no time budget. I can like, if it takes me as one example, this sounds insane, but there was one of the first original tracks we did. I was experimenting with a bunch of new textures that I'd never really tried before. And it took me a while to figure out like, how do I record these? And it also took some of the people a while to actually record them because they're making weird sounds they'd never made before. So like one guy recording on one song, for example, took 18 hours. And that's the sort of thing that like, yes, that was an unnecessarily long amount of time, but it also didn't matter because it didn't cost anything, you know, mm-hmm. and we could spend that kind of time and really try to make it about the art and the creativity and not feel the pressure of timing. Yeah, it's it's interesting the line of progression that you kind of yeah. found yourself on. I, I think like a lot of people and it, it's true, the whole phrase of hump from humble beginnings and you guys kind of set up, you know, you just kind of joined the group and you were looking to maybe do, you know, kind of one project, maybe one objective in mind, but then all of these kind of chain reactions start happening where most groups would just find satisfaction in just maybe one goal per semester. You guys kind of ran the board. Especially with such a contrasting culture with what you talk about with voices in your head. I think it totally, it, the fact that you not only introduced like, hey, here's something we could, we could do and this was successful. I think that notion of what you're defining as success, like you've kind of talked about, to them was something that was either foreign or not integrated into what their goals were for the ensemble. So the fact that you were able to not only go from like made this group what it was and had all these incredible successes, the fact that you did that in an environment that was not initially open to you taking those steps, I think is is really a really cool story and a really inspiring one. Yeah. The two things I'd say about that. So one is that I think that it was like very sort of high risk, high reward in that because the group wasn't an established group in terms of its like, Mm -hmm. I guess, ego in a lot of ways, it was kind of unmolded. You know, we could go in any direction. Whereas I imagine if if you join as a freshman, I don't know, the bubs or like the SoCal vocals or or whatever. Yeah. They have like, they know how to be successful. They know how to do things well. And so if you're coming in being like, we should do this totally differently. I think you're probably usually going to get a pretty different reaction than what was there in voices, which was sort of, it was just a little bit of a clean slate. So that was an awesome component to it. The other thing not to underemphasize though, is that this was not all in a year or two. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I was in the MD PhD program at University of Chicago. So I was there for eight years. So in a way, it was a little bit like cheating. Because one of the like funny things about collegiate acapella is that you join a group and it takes you a couple years to even figure out how to do it well. And then maybe in your senior year, you figure out how to be a really good leader and then mm-hmm. you're gone. Like yep. right as you get really good at the thing is when you go away. And you had a longer, you had more runway essentially, to figure all that out. Totally. And also, because there are some collegiate groups that I think are good and thoughtful about the process of kind of institutional memory, like thinking about how do I mentor the next generation of leaders? How do I kind of document the successes and the failures of what we went through so they don't make the same mistakes over again and they can kind of like keep going at a high level? I had the time to really think about that in a deliberate way and focus a lot on the mentorship of the next generation because once things kind of caught fire, I was really set on the idea that I did not just want this to be a flash in the pan because I'd seen in some other groups where like you get this like really inspired leader that comes in, kind of does his or her thing. And then they're they're gone gone. and the group is just like, ah, and they have this like expectation they're supposed to live up to, but they have absolutely no idea how to do it. And it's almost paralyzing and crippling. Definitely. And I, I mean, that's, I think that's something that Brian, you and I have discussed many times in regards. I, I love what you talked about in regards to institutional memory. And I'm really excited to dive into that a little bit more. We do have to take a quick break and then we're going to be right back here on Talkpella talking with Chris Rischel about, man, all of this really exciting, uh, his acapella journey and all the stuff that kind of comes along with it. So we're going to be right back here on Talkpella. Each year as we travel the world here at Acaville to bring you coverage of festivals and events, we have a chance to sit down with some amazing groups and artists. Starting on our new show, The Pulse, you'll get to sit down with them too, alongside host Rachel as she brings you some of the best of our interviews from the different festivals and workshops that she's attended. Check out The Pulse every Tuesday at 9 p.m. East, 6 p.m. West, and then again on rebroadcast Sunday at 1 p.m. East, 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. West. 
And welcome back to Tacapella. Hey, everybody. We're back on Tacapella. Chris just said that, but I really like re-emphasizing it whenever I get the chance. We've been talking with Chris Rischel today about a lot of fun stuff. We heard about his acapella journey kind of from the very like earliest beginnings and seeing how it spanned into what it is now, building up all those skills, the little things that put him on a different path. And those are always super exciting. But Chris also knows a lot about uh, institutional memory. And as I understand you, it's called, you've talked about this before, Chris, passing the torch, the importance of institutional memory. And with, I think you phrased it really well in our earlier section where you talked about how you joined an acapella group, like as a freshman, you like kind of ascend through the ranks. And by senior year, you kind of figure out how to be a good leader and then you're gone. And the notion of institutional memory are almost like kind of acapella cultural capital. I think is something that is really, really interesting because it's something that I have never done that well and had to be pushed on with my groups. They kind of just say, John, you know, you need to show us how to do these things. And the notion that there is a structured way of how to do this and that there's like a thought process and critical thinking around it, I think is super cool. Brian talked about in his senior year, I believe, with it's the green notes, right? It's the green, green tones. Notes. Damn it. Every time. Every <laughs> call, time. Green tones. Call it okay. The green notes every time. Every time. But <laughs> you talked about how your senior year, you stepped yeah. down as the musical director, kind of, or the president. The president, yeah. Yeah, so then you could let someone else figure out how to do it. And I think these are, um, both of these kind of situations here, Chris, are things that a lot of you know, random acapella people deal with, whether they're trying to be like voice in your head or just a regular community group. So I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about institutional memory, the processes behind that, and the thinking that goes into a concept and application of something like that. Yeah, sure. So yeah, so you're right. I did teach a class at NAC about this with Will Cabanis, who was one one of my mentee music directors in Voices in Your Head that came after and was phenomenally successful. Like, cannot be more proud of what he and that generation of the group accomplished in really taking their completely own direction. You know, things we did, they were like, nope, we're not going to do that anymore. And that was totally fine but really pursued at a very ambitious high level, trying something very different with, you know, I mean, that kind of the, I'd say the ultimate accomplishment of that was the, the 2017 all original ICCA set that got third at ICCAs, which I couldn't even imagine trying to do that in my time in the group. Yeah. So I think institutional memory comes down to a few different components. There, there are repeating things that acapella groups do year after year, whether it's like compete, go on tour, make albums. And there is, there are formulas to some of these things in terms of like for an album, like when do you contact your producers? How much lead time do you need? How much is stuff going to cost? What are even the phases of production? How do you distribute your money across those? You know, all of that stuff. That's a thing you could write down in a document and basically pass that on. Same thing with like putting on a concert, you know, how do you book the, what venues are available on our campus? How do you book them? What are the contact information for the different representatives of the venues? How far in advance do you have to, all that stuff you can, that, that is the sort of thing that when somebody's gone through the trouble to figure it out, it's actually pretty easy to document it. And if you have that information instantaneously available, you almost don't feel how much of a pain it would be to go and find that all again yourself. You know, so so that's one kind of institutional memory where it's just like like concrete content of logistics and practicalities. I think another piece of institutional memory is a little bit harder to quantify, which is the sort of how do you approach thinking about setting goals? How do you approach whatever those goals are? How do you prioritize what you want to achieve with those? So so as an example, like for ICCAs, ICCA, sorry, not ICCAs. (laughs) They will come after you. Yeah. Yeah, I will get cooked for that one. There is nobody wants I see that that competition set to be a formula, but there is Mm -hmm. somewhat of a formula of a way to think about it in a very broad sense. So for example, so like I said, I was around for actually almost 10 years because I also was kind of hanging around during my internship because I stayed at University of Chicago for that. And for the first, we started competing my third year in the group. And we didn't advance out of quarterfinals until 2012, which was, I guess, my fifth year in the group, right? So if mm-hmm. I was a normal four-year college student, I would have yeah, your been there and over. gone and hadn't done anything. Like 2012 was the, like, we found love, titanium, sort of, like, go to finals <laughs> kind of year, yeah, it was right? Year. And that was the year that I had the eureka moment of, oh, you have to have moments in your set. Like, it is 
obvious when you hear it or in retrospect or when you know it. But if somebody doesn't lay that out for you, you know, I was very fixated on like, oh, I'm going to write all these arrangements, like these complicated textures, and it's going to be so intricate and cool and whatever. But that's not what's important. When you're competing with 10 other groups who are going to sing like 30 plus songs over the course of the night, that the way that you stand out is within like the first 30 seconds to a minute of your set. You need to make the audience's jaws hit the floor. If you don't have a moment that is deliberately crafted in your set through the arrangement, through the choreo, through your soloists, you're not going to win. Like you're just not. That's how you stick out. Same kind of thing. Like have at least a handful of those just like, oh, expletive moments at the beginning, maybe somewhere in the middle, at the end. So you kind of create this thing of this set stands out from everybody else who just went up there and picked three songs from their repertoire that were good and maybe had good soloists, but didn't have that impact factor. Yeah. And you've got it down to like a science, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. So that's the kind of thing that in like a 10 minute conversation, I can explain that to the next music director. But if we don't have that conversation and then they have to go and try to figure out, oh, what do we do for ICCA? Even if they were a part of a set that had that kind of design or was aware of. If they don't understand the infrastructure behind it there, it's exactly. like here. It's the difference between dictating a song and having the sheet music for it. And I think, and this is just kind of, this is not based on any research, but obviously I think leaving instructions on how to do things is a really great thing. You know, that's basically what you just said in a very simple way. I just kind of taking Mm -hmm. all the nuance out of it. I wonder sometimes if, I I wonder if there are kind of two obstacles. And Brian, I'm really curious on your thoughts here too, because you've obviously bequeathed groups to other people as well. I think sometimes there's a note when a leader tries to leave things behind to another group, I think there is one notion of, well, you shouldn't like, don't make it all data driven. And like, we have to find this out on our own. Like we have to go through like this kind of emote, like we have to figure it out in this almost emotional way of looking at it that while sure, that's a nice thing. Like we all have our like, quote unquote, we all have our superhero origin story. These obstacles of, okay, well, here's like literally Kathy's number in the box office and you need to talk to her at this time. Like those kind of nitty gritty details, those are separate from this notion of the journey of self-discovery as a leader. And I think sometimes people frame it that way, or that's the notion. And then I think also the other side to it is, and this is something we talked about with Amanda Tran, I believe a few times, and Chris also kind of touched on it, is the notion of a group leader. Is it the new people wanting to say, no, we're doing it this way. And we're like, we're taking our own approach, which again is separate from, no, that's great. You're going to take it this way, but here are things that are like data-driven, proven facts on here's when you need to have your moments. Here's how you set these things up. Here is how you contact the person across town, stuff like that, that I think people, one, don't either care about, or two, are so hyped up in the notion of there being leaders that they figure we'll figure it out or it is kind of framed in this notion of well I'm going to figure out how to do it my way regardless of the logistics I know those were just three kind of that was a long little rant but I think Chris all these things you're saying are so important and I think there are kind of institutionalized or just like there is kind of a sense of well I need to do it on my own and these incorrectly ingrained ideas that can detract and kind of go against institutional memory for the wrong reasons. Yeah, and things that um, I want to start by saying is I really wish the course that you taught on uh, Passing the Torch was around seven years ago when I was still a member (laughs) in a college group, because at the time, and you've kind of helped my mind to kind of broaden and think about a few different things, is that everything that we were teaching in regards to being a leader and passing things on were simply out of necessity. And by that, I mean a necessity to continue executing a job role within the group. It was was, hey, I'm I'm not going to be president this last year because someone literally other than me needs to see how to run this group as a president from a business perspective. And then at the same sense, you know, we need to kind of change the music leadership as well so that other people can have that experience. And so we were looking at it as necessity versus the way my mind frames it based on what you're saying is more of like objective based on how we continue progressing. And with your comments, I was I was wondering, is there also this element of how do you balance still what's actually preserving tradition versus still still helping the group to evolve at the end of the day. So I'm curious as to your thoughts about all of that. 
So I'll throw a couple things. I'll try to keep it pretty tight. But the one thing that I want to really point out is that there is the objective data of institutional memory, like Kathy's number in the box office, that you can put in a Google Doc. But this other kind of mentorship, the sort of leadership cultivation, because what you're trying to instill is not just do it this way, but here are all of the different factors that I'm thinking about, all the things that I'm considering as I'm trying to formulate this decision or this strategy to solve this problem. And here's the conclusion I've reached. So it's not just this is the way, but here's what's into the decision. Here's how I think about it. And here's why I've reached the conclusions that I've reached. And so I think in one way that's helpful. But the key to that, which this is a little bit controversial and probably wouldn't fit in many groups cultures, but in voices, what we really started emphasizing was very early leadership cultivation, as in from auditions, I am thinking about who could be the, new, the next music director. When that person is a first year, I am having them come to these small leader meetings and I'm having them sit there, even if they're not participating, even if they're not, you know, totally helping us make all the decisions, they are hearing the back and forth discussion of how we're actually approaching these different problems, how we're solving them, and ultimately the decision that we reach. So they don't just get handed down a dictated decision, which I think is part of the reason why younger members are sometimes like, no, I'm going to do it my own way. They don't know what they're doing. But instead, really showing them behind the scenes to understand that thinking. So for example, Will Cavanis was a freshman in 2015, and that was the year Voices did the best in ICCAs. That was the year we had Shuba Vadula as a soloist. They got second, we got six points away from beating the vocals. And the entire plane ride there and back, I was sitting next to Will being like, I'm gonna talk your ear off about all of these things to just like, again, he's only a freshman, you know, very, very early on, just digging those claws in. Now where that's controversial is that, that a lot of people can see that as playing favorites. Because if you have four people that wanna be music director who are freshmen, and one of them appears to be the golden child of the current music director, that can create tension and a lot of issues. So that is something that we kind of had to navigate and we had to try and find the right balance of the different officer positions and sort of really trying to, again, this is the third part of the institutional memory, which is setting the group culture. So there are some things that might vary, like what are the uniforms you wear on stage? What, how do you, you know, what kind of songs do you or whatever? But the like thing that we really tried to set in voices was that even though there were people in the group that were individually accomplishing things, that at the end of the day, it was all about the group. It came back to what is best for the group? How can we help the group to succeed? We're all in this together, putting that ahead of everything else and instilling that idea from a very deep, very beginning, beginning level into people when they join the group. It's five people think that they're the best soloist on a song, but one is better. They just are, right? And so as much as you can get those other people to recognize, yeah, that person's actually better. As an example, where this was very controversial was in 2015. So Shuba Vadula, I don't know if you remember her, she made it to Hollywood on American Idol when she was in high school. Oh yeah, I remember her now. And then yeah. she came to University of Chicago and majored in music, which I love University of Chicago, but it's not really where people go if they want to become like a pop star. They don't really have like a music performance program or like pop commercial music, anything like that. But somehow she ended up there. So we're going into thinking about creating the ICCA set. And I basically said, you know, if we're really honest with ourselves, she is by far a better soloist than everybody else. Like no question, mm -hmm. not even close. Like the gap is enormous. So we're just going to have her sing all the solos in the ICCA set. And that was controversial, as you might imagine, because many people think like, oh, well, you should spread this thing around. But at the end of the day, like nobody is, oh, my God, Freddie Mercury is singing another Queen song. Like, that's not a thing, right? If you have somebody that is that level yeah. of a superstar. So how do you keep a democracy with all of that? Were these like behind the scenes kind of decisions that the rest of the group wasn't privy to? So this is complicated. So the scene was set behind the scenes. The... So soloists technically are voted on by a majority of the group. That's just how it works. There is this democratic element to it. But we had as leaders basically, like in many times, with unfortunately, there is inherently just a ton of politics that goes into this. If you do this with the wrong intention, if you appear to be being political and scheming and maneuvering to glorify yourself, that will be repulsive. People will not want to get on board with you, that that will be a problem. But if people really do believe your intentions, that you are 
A, you know what you're doing and what you're talking about, which this was an inherent advantage I had because now I'm like a mid 20 something who is mostly working with like 18 to 22 year olds and that the intentions really are genuine, that you can actually get a lot of rope to do a lot and and have it be okay. So whether it's like who's going to be the next music director or who gets what soloist or how do you approach this or maybe we'll have someone sing all the solos on this. There would be a small group of the more senior leaders that would discuss this stuff through a lot. We would kind of reach a conclusion for what we think probably should happen. Then there would be conversations with the people in the group, sometimes one-on-one outside of rehearsal or whatever, just like, hey, what do you think about this? Well, we were thinking maybe that this might be the right thing to do and here's why. And you have those conversations with the individual so when the time comes that there are elections or there is a vote to be had or whatever that the thing that needs to happen is what happens and that sounds really kind of schemey and it is a little bit because i mean really like if you take a group of 20 brilliant people right i mean probably some of the best students in their high school they are used to being the star they are used to getting the straight a's being the you know and then you put them in this group and you try to introduce this like egalitarian sort of like for the greater good kind of idea that does require a lot of maneuvering to do that on top of the fact that you know not meaning in like a denigrating way or anything but like 18 year olds are maybe not the most emotionally insightful and mature always, but you can kind of lead them to understand your perspective. Again, I think it does come down to the genuine nature of intention and things that goes into that. Yeah, I find that interesting because in in one uh, aspect is if I was to bring something like this to my group at the time, this was what, 2008, 2012, about half of them would have been like, you're crazy, we're not doing this. And then the other half been like, you know what, this is for the greater good. And so, you know, we can progress and do a lot more if we were to kind of institutionalize something like this versus this other aspect is just like, I think to at least to my understanding and what I see from a very far out perspective, groups now are kind of finding a way of incorporating this more. You're starting to see these more small groups lead more groups and helping the decision making and, you know, what the music is actually kind of better for it. Yeah. Our governmental structure that we settled on basically was that we had what we called the Hydra, which was the four heads of the different branches of what needed to be done. So it was music director, creative director, president, and business manager. And then there were many other officer positions, but those four were like the deciders of most of the critical decisions that the group did. And the things that were democratized were basically who got into the group and who gets solo. Yeah. Man, I'm learning a lot. I mean, I just love these episodes where I can just sit and learn more about the intricacies of the art that we've all been enjoying for so long and how much different perspectives and idea, like the the notion of saying this person should do all the solos, like is I, I totally understand the controversy behind it, but having you kind of explain, well, okay, what kind of group is this? This is the group that wants to win the ICCA. That makes sense. That is a logical that is a logical approach and a logical tactic to take. And I remember yep. with Mountain Horns, we never had any, my group at Colorado State, there was never really any desires to do ICCA. They might do it eventually, but I almost had like kind of the opposite rule where none of our soloists were way 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 better than the other and i wanted to yeah div- i wanted to divide it up because i had a lot of issues in seeing previous groups where it would be the same soloist over and over again despite everyone being of a pretty standard skill so like we had the opposite where it's like hey guys if someone already has like a full song solo we're a brand new group on campus and our strength is going to come from showing off every single person and like that is what is going to get people interested and excited and also give a lot of positive feedback to the individuals doing it. But if we were, you know, a group that had been around for 15 years and had a specific culture and we were ICCA driven, would have done the total opposite. So it's it sounds like, Chris, everything you're kind of talking about is recognizing the identity of your group and the cultural the culture of the group and the position they're in and then what kind of not necessarily even rules, but what guidelines are embedded in the culture of that group to reach those goals. Yeah, yeah, I think actually the essence of what you're getting at that a lot of groups struggle with is being able to clearly articulate their their goals. Mm -hmm. And this comes up all the time. Like somebody wants to make an album and you ask them, what kind of album do you want to make? And they just kind of stare at you blankly. When what you're trying to figure out is like, are you trying to win Caras? Are you trying to make a yearbook album? Like what, what are you trying to achieve? Because if you have a clear goal in mind, then it's actually pretty easy to work through the like, 
well, these are the decisions that I should make. Like trying to win the ICCA, you put your best solos up there, no question. You're trying to be like a fun group on campus where everybody gets to see their friends sing. You pass the solo mm-hmm. around. But it is actually not trivial. A lot of groups struggle with clearly articulating their goals and then also making rational decisions yeah. toward mm-hmm. achieving those goals. I think people just don't have these kind of discussions that much. I wonder you know, whether it's because they don't think to or because that's not as much in the culture but i mean i mean you just said it like the your group's identity and your goals kind of inform can inform everything because when i said hey guys we want to pass it around based on the conversation we had at the beginning of the year which is we this is our first year we just want to get well known on campus like they all said yeah that makes sense because of the previously assigned goals brian was that kind of your experience as well yeah, I think the the biggest part is, you know, we weren't thinking about any of those things. Uh, towards the end, uh, my very last year, we produced an album and I was one to push for it, but it wasn't to really fulfill some kind of a key objective at the end of the day it was like hey we have these great group of singers and you know what every other group puts an album out you know I don't want to leave the group without having something to kind of represent our time in the group especially with preserving the it, core yeah. members yeah preserving all of that history and so I think that it's, you just said it right there a lot of groups don't really have these objectives kind of talked about they don't have things decided and the you know you know of the the big ones that do because you know they're they're winning ICC and advancing to finals or putting out killer videos. They're just, and they're sure of, of their groups. identity. They have yeah, they're they not just a exactly. brand, but their whole image and everything around it is well defined. Because, like Chris said, like they understand they're not spending time trying to f- to figure out what questions they need to answer. They already know what those are, and they've had all that time and experience to answer those questions. So then they're able to go farther than people who, like you said, Chris, like, well, what kind of album do I want to make? I don't know. And then they kick that idea around for two months and nothing, nothing happens. Yeah. And it's, and there's not, this is not a knock by any means on those groups who, you know, aren't, you know, like no, the SoCal vocals or the voices in your head at the end of the day, because a lot of those groups are thriving. They've been here for, you know, decades and you know what they're getting by just fine. And they love their culture, their love, their identity. And so I think there's something to be learned here. And, and a, a thing that I really value about acapella is that it is a very accessible art form. Yeah. And if you and the group that you're in want to practice for an hour once a week and just be like super casual and have a good time and be like best friends together, like that is 100% awesome. And I think we need to make sure that even though I might not like put that group's recordings on repeat or something like that, we need to make sure that there isn't musical elitism yep. that basically makes those groups feel mm-hmm. less valuable yeah. or that they're somehow, they shouldn't exist or that we mock them. Or there's no place for them have all in these the achievements. Yeah, exactly. Culture. Absolutely. And I think we've had that discussion more than once on here, Brian. We had a group on here way, I think it was like episode 23 way back when, and their whole thing was that it's like people who don't match pitch well, but they created their own specific kind of specifically cultivated acapella experience for them and i you know having been in music education for you know studying music education for a long time the most toxic and detrimental thing is musical to a whether to a culture to the institution or just to the enjoyment is that musical elitism and i think chris it's just been so great having you kind of lay all this out for us in a really deeply and well articulated way that i think these kind of conversations sometimes aren't or just aren't had as often as they could be and i think everyone who's listening these are like great ideas just to take to your group and not saying you have to do it one way or the other but just have these discussions and you're gonna find so much out about yourself and your group and where you're going we got to take one more quick break but uh we're gonna be right back here on tacapella for our last segment Hey everybody, it's Aaron here from The Spotlight, the show that's always recorded face-to-face, always live, and always a good time. We spend at least a half an hour every week with a group or artist. We hear their backstory, hear what they're up to these days, and have some conversation while hearing them sing some live tunes. Get more in-depth with your favorite groups, and maybe some you haven't heard of, on The Spotlight every Wednesday at 5 p.m. East and 8 p.m. West, and again on Rebroadcast Sunday. It's all here on Acaville. 
Thanks for tuning back in to Talk Appella. We have been speaking with none other than Chris Rischel. Man, when I say that we could write a book on this episode, I'm not even lying. And you know what? We probably just steal most of the content from a. And we'll leave out the Everybody Loves Raymond reference, and it'll still it'll still work. I know. know, I know that was kind of the crux of the critical thought we've been talking about today, but it's it's the content (laughs) is that good. Chris, thanks like so much for coming on and telling us all this stuff. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, I think John and I have been learning so much on this episode, you know, about the group culture and, you know, infrastructures and, you know, so much about passing on knowledge to the group after you leave. So thanks for uh, giving us that insight. As per tradition, with our last segment, we always like to ask our guests if they could offer the acapella community one piece of advice, what would it be? And Chris, we pose that same question to you. Uh, yeah. So I would actually tie it to some of what we were talking about before, kind of relating to musical elitism. And this is sort of acapella related, but I think it actually cuts deeper than that, which is I think the way that we teach people to do music, especially from a young age, with this idea that things are correct or they're not. It's a wrong note. You're playing that wrong. This phrasing is wrong. This tuning is wrong. It creates this very binary and fearful way that people approach music, and it puts them in a place where they can't really express themselves honestly and genuinely, and they become very self-conscious about things. So I think the biggest advice that I would say is that if you are in a position where you're going to be trying to mentor someone or teach someone, especially at a young age about music, try to really keep it away from that realm. Because I think that's where the snobbery comes in, the elitism, the everybody looking down on other people for different reasons. So if somebody plays a note that isn't in the music, instead of saying that note's wrong, say like, okay, well, that note isn't what's on the page, but that's interesting. What would you play after that note? How would you change this? What direction could you take this? Not that there's anything wrong, but it's just what would you do with that idea? Because I think the very best music comes into existence when people feel truly in that sort of flow state that people talk about, where they just have free expression of their emotions and their ideas, and they're not in their own head about, am I doing it right? Am I going to screw it up? They're just kind of expressing. That's that's like the beauty of the genuineness of music. And in a way, acapella, I think, touches on that in a better way than a lot of other genres, like, you know, really strict classical music or something like that. And I think that it speaks to the heart of what music is and what it should be about, and that you can help people become more confident as performers, composers, anything like that, if you do give them this this idea that music isn't about a right and wrong, but music is just about what you have to say and you should feel comfortable yeah. saying it. As a music educator, like 100% agree. That's something that everyone should understand, internalize, especially like you said, for the people who are in the position of power, who have that agency and who are shaping young musicians' understanding of like their musical reality. I think beautifully said. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's about expression. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, very, yeah. Man, I'm inspired now. I would go to the gym, but I already went today and it was... Well, it wasn't great. Um, <laughs> uh, Chris, if people want to get a hold of you, see what you're all about, uh, how could they do that? I have a website, chrisrichel.com, where I have arrangements and some kind of production information. I also have an education section where I post the materials of the different classes that I've taught there. Ooh, does it have so the, the, pass- the institutional Dutch. memory on there? Yeah, it does. And I wrote a like several page word document about just like actually all the concrete things of like, just write down all these things and you'll help your group out a lot. So that is definitely available there as well. As far as what I'm doing right now, acapella wise, it's almost nothing because (laughs) uh, when I was doing my MD PhD, the joke was that I was doing a PhD in acapella and I was kind of doing a little computational neuroscience on the side (laughs) because I was just so distracted by acapella for this stuff. (laughs) And, you know, so I just graduated residency a few weeks ago. And I, thank you. And I really wanted to make sure that I was a reasonably good doctor. And so I very (laughs) deliberately just like let myself go kind of singular focus on that task for a few years. And so I've kind of been away from the scene in a lot of ways, but moving forward, it's definitely something that I want to find another group to get involved with and explore kind of what's the next really interesting thing that I think could be done in acapella. I don't know what that is yet, but I guess stay tuned because I'm not gone forever. (laughs) Nice. Brandon. Oh man, that was, I just said Brandon instead of Brian. Who's Brandon? Brandon Brandon was the first guest ever on Tacapella. Fun fact, that was the name of the first guest, but you're Brian. I know that. (laughs) 
nice recovery. Ryan, if people want to get a hold of you, man, how could they do that? Uh, as always, you can go find me on Twitter at the Brian Alex Brian with an I, and please go follow all the work that I do on the various channels with College Acapella. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at John Lampus. Follow Acaville Radio everywhere and make sure to check out our website talkapella.org and find us on twitter at talkapella t-a-l-k-a-p-p-e-l-l-a i think that's how it's spelled uh, yes it is um chris thanks again so much for coming on it's just been so great to have you and it's these this is easily one of my favorite episodes where i just get to learn so much about the uh, art we all love so much Oh, of course. It's been awesome. Thanks for having me. And everyone, let us know what you thought of today's episode about institutional memory, about barbershop in junior high, all this fun stuff that we've had the chance to explore. We always want to hear from our listeners. That's going to do it for this week's episode. But for everything acapella, please stay tuned.